evening. Let's turn in God's Word to the book of Jude as we continue and pick up our study of this short and brief book that is often neglected as we touched on our last time together. Turn to the book of Jude with me and let's turn in God's Word and pick up there in Jude verse 1. In Jude, beginning there in verse 1, a greeting that Jude gives to the called. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, the brother of James, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Christ Jesus. Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unawares, unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation. These are ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness, deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Tonight, the theme of our study is called, Called, Sanctified, and Preserved. Called, Sanctified, and Preserved. And I pray that as a result of our study this evening, that you will be strengthened in the Lord. As you rehearse God's marvelous work of grace in your own life. As you remember the day that you came to faith in Christ, as we examine just exactly how it is that God works in the lives of His people. What we find here in this passage is what we introduced last time. You have to forgive me, my notebook wasn't cooperating with me, so I've got to get my notes in order here. Last time we introduced the book of Jude, and we introduced, number one, the author. We looked carefully at who Jude is. His name is actually Judas, and Judas is distinguished as from Judas Iscariot. And so the authors and historians and the, those who compile the scriptures are very careful to call him by his nickname, Jude, and not Judas Iscariot, so as to remove, if you will, any association or misunderstanding uh, with who he is. His Hebrew form name is Judah, and the Greek form of his name is Judas. And so we have it recorded here for us as Jude. And he introduces himself there in verse 1 to us as Jude, the servant of Christ and brother of James. We walk through the scriptures, walking through and showing how Jude, during the life and ministry of Christ, this is the half-brother of Christ, was not a believer. The gospel writers record for us that, that Jude is one of the brethren, and regularly in the scriptures, for example, Mark 3, verse 20, Mark describes the response of Jesus' hometown people when he began to perform miracles and began his earthly ministry. And he says this, he says, but when Jesus' own people heard about this, they went to get Jesus to lay hold of him, for they said he is out of his mind. In other words, coming back, who does he think he is? He, he is thinking he is someone that, that he is not. And among them, no doubt, was Jude. We do not know exactly when Jude came to faith in Christ, became a disciple of Jesus, but what we do know is in Acts chapter 1, verse 13, just after the ascension, Luke records for us in that record that Jesus' own family was there. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. 
And that would include, of course, not only Jude, but also James. And so Jude wants us to know this. My relationship to Christ is a saving one. It's a saving one. He, four times in this very brief epistle, calls Christ Lord. He calls his earthly half-brother Lord. And so he models for us in verse 4, verse 14, 17, and 21, 25, that he is trusting and is who Jesus says he is and his half-brother. And he believes his message and has received his message with faith. As we look at this author of this epistle, his relationship to Christ is a saving one. But secondly, he wants us to know it is a serving one. He designates his his description here as a servant or literally a slave of Christ. Here we know that Jude is ministering to the church at large. This is not written to a particular uh, uh, church in view. This is written to the believers, as we'll look at here this evening, those who are called, preserved, and who are being sanctified by the Holy Spirit and by God the Father. One thing we know is if we think about his relationship as a serving one is that he serves the church. And Paul makes this clear in 1 Corinthians when Paul makes his argument for the right to receive support. And Paul asks these rhetorical questions. He asks the church there at Corinth, he says, Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? And have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are you not the fruit of my work in the Lord? If I am not an apostle to others, yet doubtless I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. And now notice how he brings in the argument of support. Verse 5, he says, Do we not have the right to take along, say, for example, a believing wife, as do also the other apostles? And notice here, the brothers of the Lord. So what we know here is that Jude and James and others are leaders in the church. He says, Paul says, do I not have the right to take on support, to take on a believing wife, as does Peter, he goes on to say, or Cephas there in verse 5. So what we know of Jude as we look into the scriptures is that he has placed his faith and trust in Christ. His relationship is a saving one. It is a serving one. Just a third quick point as we look at the tone of this letter, it's a serious one. Jude is taking his call to serve the church and to teach the church very really in a very serious way. The tone of this letter takes dead aim, as if a a man is taking target practice at the gun range, takes dead aim at false teachers and those who live immoral lives, discrediting the true gospel that they preach and the sound doctrine that they say they believe in. And this is a serious tone to this letter, and it sounds much like 2 Peter, Peter's tone in the epistle of 2 Peter, where Peter also calls out false teachers and gives great description as to what their future judgment is. Now, there's a future wrath reserved for them. Rivals again, Paul's tone in Galatians 1 verse 6, let those be accursed. Literally, let them be damned. Let them go to hell, Paul says, who would pervert intentionally and distort the gospel of Jesus Christ. As we as Christians, we don't talk like that. We shouldn't talk like that unless it's it's serious, unless we mean it. And that's the problem with curse language, with using vulgarities. It demeans amongst, and I'm not talking about all the words, but it demeans the truth and the seriousness of certain words. Here, Paul uses it not in a way that is dishonorable, in a way that is truthful and loving to those who would have a desire to pervert the gospel. And here, Jude would as well, warning them of the wrath to come if they do not repent and turn again to Christ. 
So as we introduce this book and look at it, the author is Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, one of those who obviously saw the risen Christ, interacted with Christ both before the cross and after his resurrection and after his ascension. Many commentators say that Jude had great weight within the church. He served the church well, and when Jude spoke, they listened. Secondly, I want us to look at the audience, and we're considering this question in verses 1 and 2 this evening. Who is he writing to? We've already made the point that this is not to a particular congregation. So, for example, the church at Ephesus, as we touched on this morning, or the church at Philippi, or the church at Corinth, or the churches of the region there of Galatia. Verse 2 tells us, answers the question, who is he writing to? Verse 2 says, to those who are called, to those who are sanctified by God the Father, to those who are preserved in, to those who are kept for Christ Jesus. In other words, this is a universal letter. Not only to those scattered abroad and to those that Jude has direct influence over, but us by extension here many thousands of years later, this message is penned for our learning and for our admonition. So it's a universal letter intended for the church of all ages, both then and now. One thing we know as we look into the book of Jude is that these readers are facing serious danger. And so Jude desires to write to them what I think is, what we'll see tonight, I think Jude desired to write to them a full treatise on their common salvation. He exalts in the common salvation that he has with the believers and us by extension that we have in Christ Jesus our Lord. But yet, he is led by the Holy Spirit to address other things. You could say things that Jude, Jude is not necessarily wanting to talk about false teachers and talk about these things. He had other things that he desired to write to them. But yet, as a pastor, as a pastor shepherd, as an elder, we see in verse 3, he calls these people beloved Verse 3 says, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. Why is that the case? Well, I think there's twofold. Verse 4 answers in the immediate context the answer why, but I want to make a statement here. I think one reason why Jude found it necessary is that we tend to shy away from conflict. You and I do not like having confrontational conversations. We get that. In the spheres of our relationships, having conversations that are not easy are not things we get up in the morning saying, I cannot wait as we look at our agenda to, to do that. They just aren't. We like to have easy conversations. We like, we like to have mutual exhorting conversations where we leave refreshed and encouraged, where there's, there's just no problems at the end of it. And I think that's one reason why Jude felt the need to write to the church and say, I found it necessary as led of the Spirit to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, because we don't naturally want to. To do battle for the faith in the right spirit, as we saw this morning, have a heart constrained by the love of Christ and knowing the truth, oftentimes we feel insecure and don't feel equipped to be able to do just that. But yet we're called to do it anyway. But verse 4 is the ultimate answer. So why did he feel it compelling and necessary to do it? Verse 4 says, Because certain men have snuck in, have crept in unnoticed. So interestingly enough, already in the first century, there are already major issues taking place in the church. I want to give you an example of one that 
just didn't seem to work its way into the message this morning. But in, in 1 John, when John begins the epistle, in fact, if you'll just turn back maybe two pages in your Bible, you'll see it in, in 1 John. There's a reason why John starts his epistle the way he does. As well as in the book of Acts, Luke writes his the way he does. He wants, and John wants the believers to know, that the faith that we have is a real and tangible faith. And notice why John says it the way he does. That which was from the beginning, now notice the senses that he brings in, that we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life or concerning the person and work of Christ. So a little background on that is John was dealing with already a pagan philosophy known as Gnosticism. Gnosticism was a Greek philosophy, just to give it into short order, that believed essentially that the body was bad, materialism was evil, to touch and to feel the aesthetic physical world was evil tangibly, but that the spirit was good. And so the idea was is that this Gnosticism began to creep into the church and began to influence belief and theology and practice to where it became a sin for, lic uh, for licentiousness, under grace, if you will. Well, my, while my body was doing that, my spirit was connecting with the Lord and having reverence with the Lord. There, there was a distinguishing, as weird as that sounds, between the deeds done in the body and that which was done in the spirit, as if we were bipolar. And I don't say that flippantly, as if these are just two different things that are housed in the same unit. And so they believe that the body is completely wicked and evil, and they also begin to attack the deity of Christ. These false teachers begin to say, well, Jesus, because if he is who he says he was, Jesus didn't truly have a body. It looked like he had a body, but he did not have a body. He was only in the spirit. And so that is why John, writing this epistle, starts off with the senses invoked here. That which we have seen, that which we have heard, that's what, that which we have touched, that which are, and it's an interesting phrase, that our hands have handled concerning Christ, concerning the word of life. He wants the believers there to know that Christ was physical in the flesh. Christ had a body and we saw him in the spirit as well. My, my, my point is this, already there's false teaching in, in creeping into the church and that is what has Jude concerned. And we'll see more about that concern as we continue our study through this epistle of Jude. But verse 4 tells us that he is calling them to action. There's a concern here that he has desired to write to them about, and he wants to warn them because it's obviously happened to affect where the people are already in the church. They've come in unnoticed. So before Jude calls them to battle, before Jude calls the church to contend for the faith, notice how he begins this epistle and he ends this, this epistle with letters and a word of encouragement. Notice how the overall letter, letter is a call to arms, but at the beginning and at the end, it is sandwiched in encouragement. We see in verse 2, going back to the book of Jude, to those who are, now why does he invoke it in this way? He wants to encourage them. To those who are the called, the sanctified, and the preserved. And then notice how he ends the letter. After you've done battle, don't forget this now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to be able to present you faultless before his presence of, the, of his glory with exceeding joy. Here's the idea. Jude is wanting to encourage them before he calls them to battle. 
He wants to remind them of who they are in Christ Jesus. He wants them to remember that as they do battle for the gospel, not to go forth in a spirit of fear, but a spirit of faith. And it leads us to ask the question, how can you have confidence and how can I have confidence when we're called to do hard things? There's a little maxim that goes like this. Confidence comes from being prepared. Confidence comes from being supported. Confidence comes in a number of ways. But that little thread there, confidence comes from being supported. Listen, when you're called to contend for the gospel, when you're called to contend for the faith, you can do it when you remember that you are preserved in God the Father, being sanctified by Christ Jesus, when you have a Trinitarian gospel that is at work in you. And that's what Jude wants these individuals to know. God has saved you. Your sovereign God has saved you. He has called you. He loves you, and he will keep you. Philippians 1 verse 6 gives us that that reminder where Paul echoes it as well. I am confident of this very thing, picking up on what Jude is saying there in verse 24. Now to him who is able, Paul says, I am confident in this very thing that he who has begun a good work in you will perform it. He will complete it until the day of Christ. So we need to have a proper perspective. Why are we called to do battle for the gospel? Well, we need to remember of what the pure, true gospel is. We need to remember who's called us. We need to remember Christ who modeled it for us and secured it for us. And we need to fear God and God alone. We're often prone to fear men. And it brings us to a reminder that those that God has called and equipped for gospel ministry, while fear does enter our hearts and minds at times, if you're truly a shepherd, and I thank God that, that God has brought us shepherds together who have one heart and one mind and one spirit, But church, I want to comfort you as well that true shepherds are not afraid of the wolves. True shepherds are prepared and on the lookout and ready to serve the body of Christ. And I thank God that we have shepherds that are on guard, that the Holy Spirit has given that sense and awareness, that awareness too. And this is what we see. Our fear needs to be in God and God alone. Luke chapter 12 verse 5 gives us the reminder of of who we should fear, where Jesus says, And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body. And after that, have no more that they can do to you. But I will show you who you should fear. Fear him, speaking of God the Father, who after he has killed, has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. And this fear is is key in the life of a believer. In fact, it is indicative of a false teacher that there is no fear of God in their eyes, Scripture tells us. So Jude calls the believers here to be ready to wage war, to battle, and to fight. So secondly, as we consider who is he writing to, who is this audience, let's go and walk back through the text here in verse 2 to those, first of all, to those who are called. Called. This is an old-fashioned word. As we look into the New Testament, we see that there are different types of calls. There is a general call that we find in this gospel records, and this general call is an open declaration of the gospel. Hear ye, hear ye, the preacher says, the herald says. Look to Christ and live. Turn from your sins and flee from the wrath of God that is coming. These would be examples of a general call. The call to repentance. Gospel preaching. Preaching of sin and salvation. These are all examples of the general call. Matthew chapter 22, 
verse 14, Jesus gives us maybe the best example. He says, many, to his disciples, many are called, but few are chosen. Matthew 20, verse 16, so the last will be first, and the first will be last. For many are called, but few are chosen. These are just two examples of this phrase, excuse me, that are used in the gospel records and in Jesus' teaching, where there's a general call, and there's also the understanding of the specific call within that. So in other words, those who respond in saving faith to the gospel are those who are elect in Christ Jesus. Here's another example in the preaching of Christ. Matthew chapter 11, verse 27, where Jesus says this. He says, All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. And the one whom the Son, now notice here, and the one whom the Son wills, chooses to reveal him. And this points us to a specific and a saving call. Again, another example of the general call where Jesus goes right into the next verse here. Come to me, all who are heavy laden, all who labor, and I will give you rest. So notice how Jesus moves from the fact that only those who the Father calls that the Son wills to reveal Himself to them, will truly come to understand what Jesus is saying, what Jesus is teaching. And then Jesus turns from His disciples and He says, Come to Me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you and learn from Me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for My yoke is easy and My burden is, is light. Many are those who hear this general call, general call that Jesus just gave. Many are those who heard the teaching and preaching of Jesus and they resisted it. They turn away. They hear that general call to repentance, that general call to come to Christ. And also many are those who refuse it. Many are those who despise it. They hear the gospel and their hearts are hardened to it. It's a reminder to us that it's a very serious thing to come under the teaching and preaching and exposure personally as you open God's word to the word of God and not respond in faith and obedience to it. Friend, search your heart this morning. Children, this, this evening, search your heart. Just because you're here and you're, you're, in a, you're in a believing family doesn't mean that you've done this. To all here present, those that have walked with God for years, search your heart and make sure that your heart responds in com complicity and in compliance to the Word of God. Make sure that you do not despise the Word of God, or ignore it, or continue in your unbelief. Speaking one more verse of this general call, Luke 13, 34, O Jerusalem, O Jer Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and the stones, those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather you, Jesus says, gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. This is that general call. But this is not the call that Jude is talking about. Then there's the, the effectual call. When you make a phone call, when you text or communicate, you're calling an individual. You're calling them by name. Now, all illustrations have their limitations, of course, because someone else could answer the call. We get it. But you're making a specific intention. The effectual call, of course, is, is when the Holy Spirit of God takes the Word of God and by His Spirit opens our heart and our understanding to the specific call of Christ. Another way you could say it is this call brings about the result intended. This is what Jude is saying in Jude chapter 2. To those who are 
called. In fact, isn't that what the church is known as? Ecclesia. The, what is it? Say it with me. The called out ones. Many, I know, struggle with these different distinguishings of calls and the doctrine of election, and I have no intention to mock or to, to be snarky in any way, but my goal is to equip and to help and to remind. And this is good news. Only the elect of God hear this very specific call. And when this call is heard, the response is always the same. It's genuine repentance and faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 20, verse 21, Paul commends them and he says, testifying, when we came and preached to you, notice here, testifying to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance towards God and faith towards our Lord, Lord Jesus Christ. This is what the specific call of Christ does in your heart. So friends here this evening, remember the day that you called upon the name of the Lord. Why did you do that? Most people don't put thought into this regard. What was it that led you to call upon the name of the Lord? You may say, well, the preacher did. His message, the message was profound. It had impact. Let me ask you a question. Why did it not have impact or why did previous messages not have the same impact in your heart and life? Why then? Why at that moment? Why at that very second did you become and have an awareness of your lostness and feel the weight of sin? And the answer to that is the effectual call went forth. And the Holy Spirit of God took His Word, took the Word of God, and did surgery in a sense, opening you and making you aware to understand, this is you. If you do not turn and run to Christ, you will be perish and be lost in your sins forever. This is that effectual call. Most people do not give that type of thought, and particularly people who deny this particular doctrine, they view that it was all of them, it was all their work, it was their idea. But friends, I want to remind us this evening that this call that Jude is writing to, this call of Christ, is particular to those who've been called by the Holy Spirit of God. I want to give you some verses that I think will help you. 1 Corinthians, we preached on this text just a couple Sundays ago. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21, notice how Paul invokes this, unless we have any questions, Paul helps us here, and he invokes this idea of what the world is looking for. And you can almost say, this is what church tradition is looking for at times. 1 Corinthians 1.21, For the Jews request a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. Paul says, But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, foolishness. But notice here, But to those who are called, both of Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The gospel is utter foolishness in the eyes of the world. If you consider your own calling, particularly some of you who were saved in adulthood, you were on one trajectory, living for your ambition, living for your world and your goals. And God, by His grace, sent the Word of God, sent a gospel preacher, brought you to a crossroads, a prodigal moment where you were at rock bottom and you were opened. You began to understand your need for repentance and there's no other way to explain your conversion than this, God. All I have is Christ, like we sang this morning. I have no other thing I can point to than to say the reason I am not persisting in, in religion, in works righteousness, or in my own sin and rejection of God, and the reason I'm in my right mind and I'm sound and in the faith and I love my wife and, and I'm 
living for Christ, the only explanation is, is God. It's God. That's why Paul says to those who are called, not just Jews alone, but both Jews and Greeks. This is how God works. It's foolishness. And God's foolishness is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Here's another example. Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a bondservant, a slave of Jesus Christ. Now here we see an example where Paul, many would have no problem with the fact that God calls men, notice here, to service. But they do have a problem that God calls men to salvation. Now notice how Paul brings both of these together right here in this short introduction. Paul, a bondservant, a slave of Christ, called to be an apostle, separated, that means a call to service. God has called me to serve in this way. I'm separated unto the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David, according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. Now notice here verse 6. Among whom you also are the called of Christ. Paul says, here I am, I'm a slave of Christ, called to serve him, but I'm writing to you, the church at Rome, among whom you also are the the called of Christ. Now here, Paul is not talking about a call to service. We're not all apostles. Paul's not saying that all there at the church at Rome are called to serve Christ in the sense of apostleship. But when he says, verse 6, among you who also are the called of Christ, he's saying you're the church. You are those, these are they, These are those who've been called to salvation in Jesus Christ our Lord. Verse 7, to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. This is who Jude is writing to. This is is who we are, Grace Church. That's why Paul says, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Many other passages we could look to. If you're taking notes, Romans 8, verse 30. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Going back to the book of Jude, if you'll turn back there with me, if for some reason you're in some of these, the book of Romans there. Going back to the book of Jude, we see the audience that Jude is writing to is, first thing mentioned in verse 2 is the call, the church. Those who have been called the bride of Christ. I'm going to give you one other, just an aside here. Why is it that men have no problem that they get to choose their bride? But they resist and resent the fact that Christ chooses his. The called. And that's exactly what we see here. Secondly, we see those that Jude is writing to in verse 2 are those who are being sanctified by God the Father. Literally in the New American Standard, beloved in God the Father. Now the tense here speaks of in both the called and sanctification, sanctified by God the Father. It is past, present, and future. In other words, this is already done. You could ask the question, when did God begin to love you? And here's the answer. It was not after you got your act together and cleaned up, presented yourself, and became lovable. Listen, He loved you before you were born. He loved you before the world was made. And as our brother Steve read just a few moments ago, Ephesians 1 verse 3 in the complimentary passage, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. 
just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to the adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace. So in one sense, this is all a completed work before the Lord. We have we are reserved in heaven. A place for us is already reserved. In God's sight, he sees the full righteousness of his son. Our glorification is complete. This is where we see in the scriptures a term that helps us in already but not yet. A tension between the already and the not yet. So, for example, in Matthew's gospel, we're regularly seeing that tension that the kingdom of God is here but yet not yet. It is invoked and has begun but yet not in its completion. God's work in us, his sanctification in us has begun but we are not glorified yet, but yet in the eyes of God the Father, mysteriously, He sees us as perfect and complete, and it's all in the past. Do not ask me to try to break that down any further than what I just did, because I don't have an ability to. It's amazing. This is why we need to sit and marinate and not mock the Scriptures and say, well, I just don't believe in that, or just because I can't handle it. Let's ask the Holy Spirit for light and help as we marinate on the, the meat of God's Word and ask Him to encourage our hearts because this is given as assurance, not for the elites. This is not given to fuel pride. This is given to comfort the church. And that's what Jude is saying. He comforts them before he calls them to battle. We can ask this question Again, we often want to say, as our mind flips and the breaker switches there, why would God show mercy on us? Why would God make us trophies of his grace? And again, I just want to remind us, it's not because of anything in us. It's not because of anything he foresaw in us. It's simply because he set his electing love upon us. You can say it like this, he chose you. Now, friends, all glory be to Christ. No pride. There should never be a doctrine that we hold to or believe or that creates a spirit of judgmentalism in our hearts or a spirit of pride that we hold to or we are missing the whole point. Doctrine humbles. Doctrine crumbles. Doctrine points us to Christ and draws our hearts to Christ and causes us to exalt in Him and Him alone. You can say it like this. Those who hold to this truth of what Jude is teaching us here should be the most humble people that you ever meet. Spurgeon says this, I believe in the doctrine of election because I'm quite sure that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I'm sure he chose me before I was born or else he never would have chosen me afterwards. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me for I could never find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with his special saving love. And to that I say, amen, Mr. Spurgeon. Not only is Jude writing to the called, secondly, we saw that he is writing to those who are being sanctified by God the Father. One other word on this idea of sanctification is it's the church. We are the peculiar people of God. And that's not, that does mean strange in one sense in that we're countercultural from the world. But the point is not so much that we're different and strange, the idea that that word peculiar invokes. It simply means we are set apart for God. Just like my bride is set apart for me and men, your bride is set apart for you. God's bride is set apart for him. Reserved and set apart for a very specific reason. We are preserved by Christ and being sanctified by God the Father. Now you'll notice the third thing we see here in verse 2 
that Jude invokes is not only those who are called and sanctified, but those who are preserved in Christ Jesus. Now, what do you see here? I want to encourage you. What Jude is teaching us is that we have a Trinitarian salvation. Jude likes to put things in threes. We see this throughout the letter. And here we see a triplet, if you will. He wants us to know that the whole Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit is committed to our salvation, to our sanctification, and to our finally reaching glory in preservation. Praise the Lord. You say, where is that at in verse 2? Remember, verse 2, those who are called, who calls us, according to Scripture, the Holy Spirit of God. He does that work of the new birth, the regeneration. Secondly, sanctified by God the Father. Thirdly, preserved and kept in Christ Jesus. Friends, listen, you're not going anywhere if you are in the arms of God. Here we see Jude unveiling and showing us our Trinitarian salvation, that we are preserved in Christ and preserved for the day of Christ. And nothing can keep that from happening, not even, listen, not even you. Now, that's not a license to sin. Some people would hear that and a critique on that would say, well, that just gives me a license to sin. Friends, if, that is your, if that's the first thing that comes to your mind, you need to question your salvation. If you see your Trinitarian salvation that, that Jude is describing and unpacking for us as a, a license to go do whatever you want to do, you, you're missing the point. Here we see that, that nothing will separate us from the love of Christ. John chapter 6, verse 38, Jesus says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him, the Father who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all that he has given me, notice, I should lose nothing, but I should raise it up. It should raise it up at the last day. John 10, 28, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they know me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me, he's greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Now notice, I and the Father are one. Talk about a double cord. No one shall snatch them, snatch them out of my hand. No one will snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Here's the point. You're not going anywhere. Nothing is happening to you and your salvation. Now because of this, pursue Christ. Because of this, love God. Because of this, respond to the Holy Spirit and exult that God has had mercy upon you. Going back to Jude, verse 2, each of these verbs that we see are all in the passive voice. The Holy Spirit has opened our hearts. God has called us. Christ has preserved us. This is all God's work. And this is what Jude is comforting the church with and celebrating the power of God. Again, I've known people who say, you shouldn't talk about these things. Well, somebody forgot to tell Jude that. <laughs> somebody forgot to tell Jude that this is something that is uh, reserved for those who are only mature in Christ. Friends, we're humbled by this. This sustains us. This is why Jude celebrates it in verse 24. Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. God is able. There are many things I'm not able to do for you. And you are not able to do for me. All I can do is pray for you, and all you can do is pray for me. But here we see, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. God has the power not only to call you to salvation, to actually save you, but also to preserve you in glory for all eternity. And I want to make a point here, lest I be misunderstood. 
And I love seeing what I'm about to show you in, in, in the Word of God because it reminds us that God has called us to action. Now, what we see here, a little bit of a tension between the divine sovereignty and the human responsibility, and we need, we, we need to let that be. Regularly in the Scriptures, we see what God calls us to do as His children, and we are told what God has done. And we don't need to fall into one side or the other. We just need to accept both in faith, exult in His work, and obey what He's called us to do. Notice verse 21. Jude points out, while he exalts both at the beginning of the epistle and at the end of the epistle, while he exalts in God's preserving work, Jude points us to our responsibility, and Jude is a wise teacher. This is sound doctrine, of course, it's the Word of God, but he's modeling for us this healthy understanding. And verse 21 says, But brethren, beloved, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Keep yourself in the love of God. How do we do, excuse me, how do we do that? How do we keep ourselves in the love of God? Friends, stay close of listening and following His Spirit. Stay close to the Word of God as He teaches you. Stay close to His will for your life. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Stir up the gift that is within you, Paul says to Timothy. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Lean not into your own understanding, walking in the confidence of the flesh. Lean not into your own understanding, but in all your ways, acknowledge Him. Give Him first preeminence. Give Him first dues, if you will. Lean not into your own understanding, but in all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. What a joy it is, church, to feel the quiet witness of God's Word and His Spirit giving us a peace that passes all understanding. When we agonize about different things in our life, when we say, God, I need, I need wisdom, I need, I need direction, God, I'm struggling to love here. I'm struggling to have patience here. God, I need, I need you. And he pours out that wisdom that we so desperately need. He gives us and answers our prayers and strengthens our faith in the Lord. Now, this duty that, that, that Jude calls us to here in verse 21, to keep ourselves in the love of God within the backdrop of God's calling and effectual call in our lives and preserving us, is similar to what Paul points out in Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13 where he tells the church, he says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Paul, I don't feel like it. I don't have a desire to do it. Well, good, because God will work in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Here's what you're called to do, and here's what God will do. And rest and bow before the balance of Scripture. We've looked at the author, we've looked at the audience, and then lastly, number three, in closing, we see the aim, the purpose of the letter. And Jude makes it clear in verse two, he says, mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied unto you. We could render this, may multiplied mercy, multiplied peace, and multiplied love flow from you. Those that have known and tasted of the goodness of God. Dave, the other night on Wednesday night, taught an excellent lesson from First uh, Peter there, and he reminded us of God's the definition of understanding mercy is God withholding from us what we deserve. Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Every single day, God pours out His mercy upon us as his adopted children. It's of his mercies that we are not consumed. 
It's of His mercies that He does not deal with us as according to our sins, the psalmist says. Psalm 103, 14, For He knows our frame, and He remembers that we are but dust. He gives mercy upon mercy and grace upon grace. One author says this, John Phillips in his commentary says this, when we think about multiplied mercy, multiplied peace, multiplied love, mercy is an upward view of the heart that, that, that the Holy Spirit would draw our hearts to. Looking to God, remembering the multiplied mercy that He gives to us. Peace is the inward view of our own hearts. Peace that we have received as a result of the gospel of Christ. It's an inward view. So an upward view and an inward view as we think about the peace received. As Romans chapter 5 describes it, peace with God. Then multiplied love moves us from an upward view to an inward view. And that last one, love, to an outward view. This is what Jude describes that his desire is for the church. That they would know this, notice here, personally. That they would pour it out and give it generously. Now, not speaking of the false teachers, but speaking of just our disposition of the calling that God has called us to in our, in our lives. As we conclude our study for tonight, as we have introduced this epistle of Jude, and before we get into contending for the faith, as we think about multiplied mercy, multiplied peace, and multiplied love, may we be a people here at Grace that because of that sovereign grace that we've studied here tonight, that we give it to others. Now, of course, we can't give salvific grace or saving grace, but we be known as a people who have been shown grace. May our lives match up to the salvation that we say we believe. May our lives be in alignment to the glorious Trinitarian salvation that we have experienced, are experiencing as we are, quote, being saved in that sense of sanctification and the full reality of glorification that we will know one day. This is what Jude wants them to know. Confidence comes from being supported. For our purpose, confidence comes from a Trinitarian salvation. And he says, you can go do battle and not worry about your life, not worry about your health, not worry about your reputation, not worry about anything because you are secure in Christ Jesus. Now, friends, I don't know where you're at this week. I don't know what God may call you to do. Most of what God's calling is for us is to be faithful Steady eddies. It's found in a steward just to be found faithful. I don't know what God has for us this week, but may we remember this, the spirit of faithfulness. And if there's a sense where we need to contend for the faith, we can do that because we are secure in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, again, we, we thank you for the salvation that you have provided for us in Christ Jesus our Lord. Father, thank you for your mercy. And because we have received your mercy, may we, Lord, show mercy to those who hurt us, to those who annoy us. Father, you don't give to us what we deserve. In our own defense for ourselves, Paul says, can we not be defrauded? Can I not be defrauded? Does everything have to be uh, just an exact record of, of vengeance? And of course, the answer to that is vengeance is mine, says the Lord. May we be a people who are merciful. May we be a people who have that inward peace. And because of that peace through the gospel, our joy is full. And we can live out of the overflow of that and pour that out to other people as we communicate the gospel to them. Father, I pray for our church as we have already had a wonderful first day of the week. 
the world will, in their mind, start work tomorrow thinking that's the first day, and they will go forth in the usual rhythms and annoyances of Mondays. But, Father, may it not be so with us. Our joy is full. We have been with the people of God. We are strengthened. We already have a head start. And, Lord, may that be a reality that is very real in our talking, our conversations, as we seek to glorify God. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.